With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. more Amari podcast. Lance, how are you tonight? Doing very well. How are you? I'm doing great. We're happy about bringing this interview to you. It's a really interesting conversation with a really interesting guy. And it's been a long time coming with our guest, Billy Jensen. He wrote for Boston Magazine a great article in 2014 called will the internet find missing college student Maura murray and we had reached out to him soon after within a few months after the article was written and exchanged a few emails but the timing just didn't seem right to have him on for whatever reason we we we, we sort of scheduled something and then it fell fell through he's a busy guy if you go to his website billyjensen.com that's billy j e n s e n.com you'll see everything that he does the writing the the crime watch daily i don't believe if we were to interview him back in 2015 or 16 probably wouldn't have gone as well as as it went tonight yeah i agree we've grown obviously um you know we're we're not journalists like he is but uh but you know, we're, we're kind of dipping our toe in those waters. So it's really interesting to hear him talk about what he does and also the citizen detective work that he does on his spare time, which is so pretty much everything he does is like very kind of similar to what we do. He does the citizen detective. He's a supporter of that. He's a supporter of crowd solving, crowdsourcing information, uh, loves the fact that it can be done on a responsible basis and and he does, in his apartment, as a matter of fact, have all of his cases on his wall. He doesn't have the red string that connects them all. And as he said, I believe he said, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., it's all about crime. So this is this this guy's this guy's the real deal. And I, you'll hear it when you hear the interview. His answer to why he does that it was, it wasn't at all what I expected, and it was amazing why he does what he does. Right. Fantastic answer. Really hope you enjoy it. Um, we'll be back in two weeks. Let's play the interview, Lance. Thank you very much for listening. And follow us on Twitter at Maura Murray Doc. 
Welcome to Missing Mara Mari, Billy Jensen. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Billy Jensen is somebody who, uh, I think, since we read your article in Boston Magazine, Will the Internet Find Mora Murray? You wrote this in February of 2014, I believe. And that was really close to the time where Tim and I were seriously considering a project focused on the disappearance of Maura Murray. And with James Renner's material, your article was something that was a bit of a refreshing break from the rhetoric that was out there. Yeah, no, I think I started writing that story probably in the late spring or early summer of 2013. And I really wrote it from the angle because uh, I knew that the 10th anniversary was coming up and print publications always like to deal with, with anniversaries. And I wrote it from the angle of the citizen detectives, which were really starting to to uh, proliferate. And I really wanted to focus on them more than almost the crime itself, uh, in a sense. I had to do so much. And because of the word count, unfortunately, you know, I had a lot of stuff that they did cut, but you know, there was so much of the, the crime is so complex, the crime, the incident or series of incidents are so complex that laying that out was almost half the article. And then, you know, I couldn't even put in things like, you know, the, the crazy laughing guy, you know, that wasn't in there uh, at the time, even though that was one of the things that actually drew me to it was uh, these people that were sort of injecting themselves into the narrative. Yeah, I was going to ask, how did you find out about the case in the first place? You know, I had known about the case from having been, you know, I came up to Boston in 2005 and I was editor of the Boston Phoenix. So I had, because I had covered missing persons before on Long Island and I had started doing a lot of stories, um, uh, a lot of crime stories starting when I was stringing for the New York Times and then uh, with the Long Island Voice and the Village Voice and then then the Long Island Press. So uh you know, I had known a lot of missing persons in the New England, New York area, and I had known this case. So when I went up to Boston, it was in my files as like, this might be something to cover just because she did come from uh, from UMass. So from there, I went on to, you know, doing a bunch of other different stories. And then I left Boston within, you know, 18 months of getting there. And I, I came out to, uh, uh, to Arizona and... But it always sort of stuck with me. And then just doing a search for other uh, stories, I came upon her again and then really started to fall down the rabbit hole. You uh, you said uh, Citizen Detectives, which is a really, and maybe because you're, you're a journalist and a writer for a living, but that's a way more elegant way of putting armchair detectives, which is a term that most of the people in this community give that term armchair detective to the, the amateur sleuths out there. Uh, did you ever toy around with that term armchair detective? And you were like, oh, that's too hokey. Because uh, citizen detective is like kind of badass. A citizen means it's somebody that's not getting paid for something, but they just care like a citizen's arrest. So um, that's exactly what this is. So it's not so much an armchair. An armchair, it's, you know, it's a, it's a colloquial term. It's a little, it's a little dated. Um, but if you say to somebody, citizen detective, that means that they are a regular citizen. They're not a real detective. They're not a real journalist. They are just interested in finding out what happened. There are definitely varying um, degrees of citizen detectives and, and how much they're into the case and what, what skills they might have. But I've always thought that that, you know, even starting a little bit before that case, I've always felt that that was the case that that, that was the the 
the term that really served these people the best. And moving on from there, uh, you know, I did a, a panel with Michelle McNamara in uh, South by at like two, uh, two, 2014, and we called it Citizen Dicks, Solving Murders with Social Media, where we went through a lot of the, the cases. And we talked a little bit about Maura Murray as well. But um, I think Citizen Detective, that nails it. I think it's a perfect phrase for it. So you cover a lot of cases. You uh, you work for Crime Watch Daily, right? So you you kind of cover, I imagine, a couple different cases a month or something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, for this, you know, on top of, you know, I've got my writing and then, you know, I was a digital executive after being an editor and sort of moving over to the digital side of it um, for newspapers, but I would still write. And now, you know, because I do a lot of cases and I work a lot of cases on my own uh, at night, uh, and then I do the show during the day, I'm really crime all the time. You know, I'm crime from seven o'clock in the morning until midnight. So uh, it's 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 interesting. Yours is one of the few podcasts that I listen to just because of the fact that people ask me, why don't you listen to more podcasts? And I said, I only have maybe 30 minutes in the day when I'm not doing crime. Let me listen to some David Bowie. Let me listen to some Howard Stern. I don't want to have to listen to a podcast in my car when I'm driving to work and driving back from work. And we thank you for that. <laughs> yes. So is this case different then? And if it is, like, what is it about this case that makes it different? The thing that makes this case different than the other cases that I've that I've seen or, or, or as as close to it, when I was digging into this case, the amount of just stuff, the amount of clues and which are probably mostly all red herrings uh, are immense. And it really did feel it got it got me feeling like the first case that I ever dug into as a kid, which was the Kennedy assassination. So I had seen a movie called The Man Who Saw Tomorrow when I was a little kid. And it was about Nostradamus. We uh, you know, my mother and father had gone out to dinner. They gave me some French red pizzas and say, hey, here you go. Here's cable, whatever I put on Channel six on the cable box and I'm watching this horrific, you know, show, it didn't freak me out about World War III. What freaked me out was that there was a guy in the bushes that shot Kennedy. So I went through and the next day I went through uh, uh, a library and I got all the books out and everything. And then eventually after 10 years, I solved the Kennedy assassination because it was Oswald and uh, every schmuck has his day. So, um, but there were so many things like the, Magic Bullet and the Grassy Knoll and the Three Tramps, all of these things that if you just tell somebody who knows it, they know exactly what you're talking about. You know, if you say the Magic Bullet, you know exactly what you're talking about. Grassy Knoll, all of these sort of things. Same thing with Mora's case, where you have the rag and the tailpipe. You have the A-frame house. You have the bus driver. You have the phone call. You have the voicemail. You know, you have all this stuff that... You just have to mention it, and people who know the case know exactly what you're talking about. And that was the biggest thing that 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 struck me and struck me how many rabbit holes you could go down with trying to figure out what she was drinking or you know why she would buy that much alcohol, uh, you know, for a road trip. Uh, you know, all of those different things. There's so much avenues, and then at the end of the day, there is a there's no answer to it, so nobody's wrong. Uh, you can say somebody's wrong, but Nobody has been proven wrong yet. Eventually, maybe somebody will be proven wrong. But right now, there's no theory that's wrong. Was there a particular moment that you came across in the case uh, that you felt that you were about to fall down the rabbit hole? Or is that something that you look back at now and you go, wow, I don't understand how it happened? Was there one thing like, you know, the Alden video 
uh, or well, the olden video is interesting just because you start looking at it and you start trying to see, you know, the reflections in his glasses. You start trying to dissect everything. And right around this time, too, I was also working on a story or at least the beginnings of a story for Rolling Stone about Luca Magnata and the citizen detectives that helped that sort of identified him when he was torturing kittens. And then he went on to, to, to kill a person and torture a person. So I knew some of their techniques and what they were doing. So I was kind of using that a little bit and going in and just trying to like, especially with that video. But then, you know, with that video, it just looked like it was a crank. Uh, going deeper into, you know, even in, into J James's relationship and, and, and James's relationship with Fred and how that got fractured and how James's distrust of Fred and Fred's just like, I don't care about any of this. I just want to find my daughter. Um, you know, I was really intrigued more with this case once I got myself out of that because I realized what I was writing. I wasn't writing specifically about the case. Um, and even though naturally as an investigator, I'm going to start investigating it. And I did get a little bit down the, down the rabbit hole with the accident itself and where she would have gone and looking at the maps and, and, um, looking at what was in the car and how much she might've drank and all that. And then the phone calls and all that, and whether she was somebody was lighting up a cigarette or whether it was a cell phone or whatever. I, that was probably the closest rabbit hole that I got, that I got down, but I only got far enough to grab the marmalade and that came back up. Yeah. The other stuff is, uh, you know, it was really those interpersonal relationships which, between everybody and, you know, these random figures like um, that lawyer, Sam Ledyard, who had run that Not Without Peril blog, which looks like I think he stopped that right after my story came out. Mm -hmm. and I think he was getting threats and stuff from it. Mm -hmm. But he, um, you know, he stopped that. But but he was just really invested in the case and would even talk about, you know, other things. There was also other people that I had talked to as well that didn't make it into the into the case. And, you know, it was just, it was that, it was just, and it was sort of, it was my first entree into these people that have no connection to the case, but are investing six, seven hours a day in trying to figure out what's going on. Have you found there's a similar personality type between citizen detectives? Oh yeah. Oh, there's, there's archetypes. What you find is, and it also depends on where they are too. So if you have a closed Facebook group uh, you know, the, the main three places in terms of a forum and you have other, you have other forums too. You have the unsolved mysteries forum is still active and people still comment on that. But, uh, and you have little ones sort of here and there. And certainly with hers, hers was one of the first ones where people were commenting on all message boards and things. But, you know, now it's, there's three main places. There's web sleuths, there's Facebook, and then there's Reddit. And the way that I use, you know, one of the things that I do, um, at night is I solve, I help police departments solve murders with social media. So what I do is I set up targeted uh, advertising campaigns. And when I have a good piece of video, usually uh, I can go and I can target specifically based on an algorithm that I built on where I'm, who I'm trying to target, trying to target people who might know who this person is. And I've been able to solve six so far. And I work with the police departments with it, and it, it's worked out really well. I spent a lot of money, my own money on it, but it's just nice to be able to do stories that have endings because I usually only write about stories that are unsolved. So either missing persons or unsolved murders. I don't do – very, very rarely do I do something that is, that is solved. So, um, you know, there are these different types of architect, archetypes. You've got on Reddit – it's anonymous, so you're gonna. It's gonna be a little bit more caustic. Um, they're gonna know if you have an agenda, and they're gonna read through it. Uh, on Facebook, it's a little bit more of a um, 
nurturing community and so is web sleuth because they have a little bit more rules and they have moderators that are going to slap you down and and say if you know if you don't do it i'm seeing this a lot now with the case i'm working on the allenstown 4 case which happened right up in new hampshire and i had actually you know i've interviewed jeff strelzlin twice for that case and my first interview with him was was about mora and, uh, you know, Jeff has seen Citizen Detectives Act before. He's seen that it's work. So, you know, he's fine with it. And he like he 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 reads everything that somebody sends him. He just will say that um, just don't interfere. It didn't interfere with the investigation. So, you know, you've got people that are either um, will dabble in case after case after case. Uh, you got people that will start as soon as something happens, they'll start trying to find out information which can be bad, especially if they name names, which is what happened recently in Charlottesville, where they saw the car and then they started doxing the car and then they realized that, hey, it's this, this guy. And this guy's like, I sold the car. This is not me. And then, he, you know, he had to put out a public statement because the pitchforks were out for him. <clears throat> so you have those people. You have the the people that are, are a little bit more of a long game, which is kind of like web sleuths. And then you have from there the people that really are break out and try to start their own thing. Uh, I'm going to forget about this. I'm going to start my own Facebook group or I'm going to start my own website or something based on this crime. And then the the question is for them is that after that crime is solved or if it is solved, where will they go from there? Will they go to another crime or will they just say, you know, I'm done with it? And, you know, for certain, you know, sometimes, you know, James really had two. you know, James had two. He had Amy and, and he has Mora. And now he's kind of like, I'm doing fiction now. You know, he's he's kind of had enough of it. Um, and me and him come from the same world. We come from the same alternative journalism world. So yeah, that's what you've got. You've got all these sort of people surrounding it. And it's, it's really, I don't, I don't want to say it's sick, but it is, it's an incredibly, uh, intense phenomenon, um, especially in this day and age in 21st century with social media that we're all gathering around talking about this woman and dissecting every bit of her life that, um, and she has absolutely probably no clue what's going on. You sound like you can uh, separate the cases pretty well, unless you've uh, unless you've totally convinced us otherwise um, and put on a really good front. But is was there ever a moment that you were close to being carried away in any case that you've looked into where you had to take a step back and say oh jesus that you know i'm 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 definitely uh this is becoming too personal because it sounds like you've got a good way to compartmentalize everything and you you do one thing and you move on and you separate it all out yeah there- i think that's what happens from starting out as a journalist you know and i'm still a journalist but you know from having to go and you know if I'm working on a story, eventually I've got to finish that story and I've got to give it to an editor. So I can never get that deep into it. And my editor is going to slap me and say, we have to publish this now. And I've got another story for you to write. That's what's going to happen. So I can get, I can get very deep and into, into the weeds and go down rabbit holes, but I'm always able to pull myself out quite frankly, because there's 5,000 unsolved murders in America every year. I can only reach a couple of them. Um, so I'm never really down in the, in the, you know, the closest probably I've been recently has been Allenstown four, just because, uh, with the bodies in the barrels, just because I've been doing it a long time. I was the first national outlet to do a story last year. Then we found out, uh, who the, um, 
uh, who the stuff is, who the guy is, but we didn't know his real name. And I got news for you. We're going to know his na real name real soon. To have an, almost an entire family unit to be found dead and nobody even knows who they are. That was what drew me to that case. Mm. And, you know, we, we found one and we found out who it was who killed her, probably, most definitely. But it opened up a million other questions. And this guy left a trail of bodies. This guy is the most evil serial killer you'll have ever seen because he is meeting young women with with kids, starting to date them, molesting the children. When the kids get old enough to talk about it, he kills the woman and then takes the kids and uses them as a lure for the next kid, for the next woman who has their kids, then kills the first kids and then starts it all over again. That's what this guy's pattern was. And uh, I don't think you can get any more evil than that. I, I can't see, you know, I've studied all those guys in, in high school and Bundy and Dahmer and all those guys. And this is this is more evil than anybody because of the trust that he was that he was gaining from these people and then using one to get the other. Uh, this is a sick, sick individual. He had a babysitter who was babysitting the one girl who eventually grew up and, and started her own family. But there was also a six month old kid there. What happened to the six month old? Uh, what happened to, uh, you know, there was another, there was another time where there was another people. There's two murders that we've been looking at really closely and I'm working closely with, with, with the investigators on both coasts, particularly more the one, uh, that's closer to me in San Bernardino about, uh, a couple cases that look kind of similar, similar, you know, he liked to hit people in the back of the head. You know, that was his thing right over here is where he would, where he would hit people. Uh, Anson June, who, who he murdered in California had the same, injuries as the girls and the woman in the barrel so there's a couple of them that we like for him over over here and um you know the, the little girl who actually grew up where her mother is that's nobody you know which is how we were able to figure everything out we don't know where her mother is and i'd love to be able to a find other victims and b find her remains and that was what was crazy because we came out and we said hey we we, we figured out who this guy is, is bob evans right and he has other names. He has a name of Larry Venner. He has a name Gordon Jensen. He has with Kimball. He has all these different names, names that a lot of times that he um, he would steal somebody's wallet and take take their identity back old school sort of identity theft. Um, but we still didn't know exactly who he was, and we didn't know. I mean, was he killing people in high school? We had no idea where he went to high school. So we got that now. Now it's a matter of trying to piece together this guy's whole life. The life that he led and, you know, uh, where he lived and take it from there. And just it's going to open up a lot of cases, a lot of missing persons, a lot of unidentified remains are going to be looked at saying, hey, we know he spent time here. Is that um, could that be him? You know, could, could he have been responsible for that murder? So it's going to be a real interesting time for me coming up with the next uh, three weeks. Now, is there any chance that uh, Bob Evans was in New Hampshire in 2004? Do you, yeah. Have you? No. Okay. He definitely was. Uh, he, was he was incarcerated. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. There was no, there was no <laughs> chance that, that, that happened. We cannot add that to your little, yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. I will not get dragged into that. You see what I was doing there though. Trying to, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Doing that. <laughs> Cause that's what this case needs is, is more, more red herrings. Well, you know what? We need more clues and red herrings is what we need in this case. More, more suspicious characters. Yeah. And yeah, we need that. So, yeah. you know, for you guys, because I think about this with you know, my friend Michelle, who was working on the Golden State Killer case, who passed away while she was in the middle of working on the book, and and myself and her researcher just finished the book. We just shipped it out. It's it's at the copy editor now. Uh, it's really really good. She's a beautiful writer, and we just had to kind of 
you know, put it together and, and give it sort of like this narrative, um, you know, kind of, um, uh, just ligaments in between just so everything kind of connected together and then remind people of you talk about rabbit holes and, and also strings that she wanted to follow out of the maze that she wasn't able to follow out. And, uh, you know, some of those were familial DNA. Uh, some of those were uh, geographic profiling, which are two when you have, you know, a serial killer case or a serial rapist case. But, you know, with her, I would always ask her because she had spent so long on one particular case What's it going to be like after it's solved? Like, what are you going to do? And she has she had a, her own blog, and even though she went laser focused with this case for three years, you know, you're you're always going to have that one case. For you guys, you know, you've you've dedicated so much time with this one case. If tomorrow we hear uh, that remains were found in the woods, they did a DNA test on it, took a couple months, and then it, it is the remains of Maura Murray in the woods. How would that affect you guys psychologically? Not only the fact of not having potentially something to do, even though you have started another podcast, but but also having a um, having all those red herrings sort of just blow up. It would be the best day of my podcasting life if that news came through, because secondary to thank goodness they found the body, thank goodness there's some sort of closure. Secondary to that would be how it got there, why, you know, all of the hows and the whys and, and, and yeah, blowing up all those red herrings and putting all of those to bed. And, and just it, like you, when the, when you started saying it, I realized what you were getting at. And I, and I literally felt like a weight, like coming off my, coming off my shoulders, like coming out of my chest. Like I would love that. I would love to just feel like it's all getting stripped away and, and you're you're left with the physical and and metaphorical remains, and you go, that's what happened, and that would be awesome. Yeah, it, it would it would alleviate like a psychological pressure, I think. Um, and you know, obviously, we would dig in, like Lance said, and make sure we know exactly what happened, and then I think we'd you know be thrilled to move on, you know, and uh, and f- finish our documentary and. Uh, you know, try to move on as gracefully as possible. Because we all have these cases, you know, and I know, you know, just today, even though this is airing a little bit later, Oxygen is running a series about Natalie Holloway. There's news that they found remains. and Whether whether, whether that's going to be a red herring or not uh, remains to be seen, but no pun intended. When John Ronson was on your show and he was talking about, he always writes, every time he writes something, he writes about a thing and then it kind of becomes another thing. Remember him saying that? Mm-hmm. Writes about something and then and something else. And with this, you know, you're writing about a murder or, or you're, you're investigating a murder, but then it becomes, and that's kind of like what I tried to do with the Boston Magazine piece about Mora and the investigation was that it becomes about this fascination of people. And, you know, it's a big it's a big interest of mine because what I always tell people is that if you ask any detective, anybody in law enforcement, why didn't you solve that case? Why do you have 50 cases, 50 cold cases? They'll say resources. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish we could have, I wish we could put more, more people on it. We have right now in America, we are heading towards the most educated, the most skillful a uh, group of people to be retiring that we've ever seen in the history of the world with the baby boomers. I guarantee you a lot of these baby boomers would be more than happy to go in 
you know, 20 hours a week, sit down, start digitizing files, you know, just doing that, that grunt work that they're not able to do. Can't tell you how many times I've worked on a case and they've said, well, the files aren't digitized or they were lost in the flood. There's a lot of floods that happened, you know, or it was mm -hmm. in that old building and then they got thrown away and then, you know, that kind of thing. You know, so there's so many of these people that are that are that want to do this work. I would love to see these sort of like, you know, maybe citizen liaisons in different. I've talked to police departments about this. It's just, you know, we've we've been to a place where we do crowdsourcing. We've been to a place where we do um, citizen journalists and citizen journalists are huge right now. All that stuff that we've been seeing in Charlottesville, a lot of that was citizen journalism stuff. Those were people with their cell phones out. That next step, especially because we're building this giant in this country we have a 5,000 unsolved murders every year. You know, that's a 63% clearance rate. In 1960, it was a 90% clearance rate. So, you know, when you think of, if you were to ask anybody on the street, what's the clearance rate? Is it easier to get away with murder now than it is in 1960? Everybody would say, no, it's just, it's, you know, we have DNA now, we have this and that. But, you know, we're building on top of this mountain every year, 5,000 more, 5,000 more, you know, 200,000, 210,000, 215,000. Somebody's got to be there in order to get those get those answers, not only to the families, but also potentially to keep those guys off the street. Familial DNA is going to help with that. Um, but, you know, and, and I know the more Murray case isn't necessarily something that we that we have that we're dealing with DNA. But um, New York just passed familial DNA. So we're going to be able to do searches for familial DNA if, if the DNA is left at a crime scene and that guy's family is is inside the uh, the database then we're going to be able to be led to him so it's good that new york did did that unfortunately though you can't do another state so if we had something from the other state you can't do the other state unless the feds get involved and california is that same way we could solve so many murders right now if we could do it interstate now you gave us the how in your start in all of this with your uh, your successful conclusion of the JFK assassination when you were uh, a preteen. Um, what's the why? Because you said that a lot of these police officers, a lot of people in law enforcement get into it because they want to catch the bad guy. Why? Why are why are you in it as a journalist? And and why the why the the field? Why is it always unsolved? Is is it is it something that 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 nags at you? Uh, I know like actors, like stage actors, they'll they'll do a play and it's all the rehearsals and then they'll do the play and then the, the run ends and they have that post play depression and they need to do it again because they just need that that rush again because it's what they do. Is that is that kind of what it's like for you? For me, it's more about hating the guy that got away with it. And the idea of someone taking somebody else's life where even if, you know, and I try to do stories that aren't at the top of the news, um, they're not the headline stories. I'm doing the stories of the, the women that I just did in Columbus. They were women who were addicted to heroin. They were street walkers. They weren't, they weren't call girls. They weren't uh, back page girls. These were the, at really the bottom. And nobody was going to fight for them. But there's a serial killer killing these girls. And I want, that's why I went out there and tried to and knocked on doors. Because no matter how bad society sees your life as being like, oh, my God, look at that guy in the street. Um, what is his life like? He's going to have one moment in his day that's going to be nice and fun and happy. He's going to have smiled. 
And to take that away, to somebody to have the gall and the bravado or just the carelessness to say, you know what, you're dead and I'm choosing that. And I hate that. That's the, that, that thing just gets to me so much. So having that, that person that's out there knowing that they did that, but also knowing that they could do it again, that's what drives me. You know, if there were no murders, if I woke up tomorrow and there were no murders and no suicide, certainly and no murders, I'd be the happiest cat in the world. But, you know, there's people that are still out there and there are people that aren't fighting for them. So that's what I do because I hate the guy that got away with it. So getting back to the Maura Murray case a little bit, um, what, what was it like when you met Fred? And I, and I know you interviewed him and uh, and everything. So what was your impression of Fred? Well, I only did Fred on the phone. Oh, okay. And one of the things that I did with this story is because it was all virtual, I never even went up. So I've never been on 112. Oh. Um, but because I, I was, was going to do it all virtual. I was going to do it sort of from the aspect of somebody that had not – had this and even though there were people that would go up to 112 and take photos and everything so you know i i found fred to be you know a guy that is that misses his daughter that had a very close relationship with his daughter that wants to find answers and but he still played he's still playing i don't want to say it's a game but he's still you know he could easily have disassociated himself from this whole thing and said i'm not talking anymore to anybody but he continues to do it. And, you know, when I had that and then I had I had Renner on the other side saying, I think Fred knows knows more than he's I, I never got that sense from Fred. I could be completely wrong. But why would he even at this moment keep talking to people if he had something to do with her disappearance? If he if there was that second mystery car, it doesn't make sense. And uh, in the same way that like Butch, uh, you know, the car pulls up Butch. If Butch is a killer, if you're a spider and you catch a fly in your web, you don't go telling all the other flies. He calls the police right away and says, hey, there's a, um, you know, there was an accident in front of my house. If he really wanted to get this girl and do something bad to her, he wouldn't have done that. And, uh, you know, there's so many different ideas of what happened, but so many of them are so far-fetched. And I really am an Occam's razor guy. And, uh, you know, and I think... I think Fred was too. I think Fred thinks that she started walking. His big concern was that she started walking one way and they didn't check that way. She started walking the um, the way that she had been, had been coming from and they didn't go follow her that way. His also concern was that they, the glove that they used was a glove that was a new glove and didn't have her scent on it. You know, So you know, Fred was very, very critical of law enforcement. He had done a lot of things to piss off law enforcement. Uh, Jeff had said that he had definitely made things. I forgot the words that he used to me, but made things difficult for him. But, uh, you know, this is a guy that's, that wants to know what happened to his daughter. And he's seeing this kind of circus pop up around him. He hasn't disassociated himself from it. He hasn't run away from it. I don't think he's got anything to hide. I think the 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 explanation of what you said about Butch is the same as, as Fred, you know, if he had something to hide, he's, he would, he would stop talking. He would, he would shut down. Or Fred would have disappeared and been exactly. with his daughter. If his daughter is, is in Canada and then the heat's getting too big on, in Canada and he's the one that got her up there, he would follow her and then they would go live in someplace else if they had exactly. that sort of relationship and everything. So uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And then there's the other thing, you know, 
I'm reading this book called Missing 411. It's actually a, a bunch of books from David Paulides. I don't know if yep. you know that guy. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, and he does a lot with uh, people that go missing in forests and national parks. And I'm reading this one case from like 1969. And this little kid is hiking with his parents in Arizona. He runs up. He's 10 years old. He runs up a little further. And then he goes missing. They were either he fell down a mine shaft or he was abducted. And it was like. I'm reading the story going, he was abducted. Yeah, because there's just, on a, on a random, you know, not even foresty, more deserty, which is very hard hard to hide in the desert, there was somebody hiding in there waiting for, hopefully, a little kid to be walking by himself to grab him and, and, and run away. And I was just reading that passage today because I was looking for other cases. It reminded me of talking, you know, I'm going to be talking with you guys, is that with Mora, the whole idea of that there was a serial killer that was just driving around that day, and then he, you know, heard on the on the police scanner that 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 somebody had gotten into an accident. And uh, lo and behold, it was a pretty female, too, that got into the accident. You know, who knows who it could have been? It could have been just some old guy. You know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, it just doesn't. No, that that doesn't make sense. I think a, a, a big disservice to the case uh, happened when somebody I don't even know where it, it started, but the term opportunistic serial killer came up. It shouldn't be serial killer. If she was abducted by somebody, it was an opportunity. And when we talked to John Ronson, he said, you always hear stories about how, how, how huge the odds are to, to win the lottery. It's, it's astronomical. It's one in 75 million or something stupid. But somebody wins. Somebody always has an opportunity. You, you, you do hear about people winning. So if she was abducted, I don't believe it's an opportunistic serial killer. I think it's an opportunistic, like Fred said, it's a dirtbag. It's a dirtbag who is up there. It's just so odd to me that her, her scent goes missing right between the two houses of the, of the two guys who claim to have seen her last. Butch Atwood and Rick Forcier. Rick Forcier claims to have seen – and that's – that 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 needs to be that needs to be like looked into a little bit more. I think. You know, the good thing is there's an oxygen show uh, that's coming out at the end of September that we're actually a part of. That's looking into it a little bit further. Really? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Pretty but, cool. What's the oxygen show called again? It's called The Disappearance of Maura Murray. That's fantastic. We're gonna check our local listings on that. If you just take the term serial killer out of that explanation, it's it it. It opens up the door a little bit more to other possibilities of abduction. And the fact that there's no footprints in the in the woods, in the snow, the they did as much criticism as the police get. They did a really good job in the days after searching that area with helicopters, with with heat heat uh sensors they saw i mean the detail that was described by police officers was you know you could see the foxes running through the woods they found they've never found a scrap of evidence of anybody not even mora but anything that's in there that that would lead anywhere so when you when you look at everything if you said you're you're an occam's razor fan that's part of the occam's razor thing mm-hmm. oh sure not having the but again i can't see i can't see what and listen, I'm not being a conspiracy theorist by any sense of the stretch of the imagination, especially being an Occam's razor guy. But I can't see what that scene looked like and how hard, you know, it, police are always going to say and the investigators are always going to say, yeah, we did this, this, this and this and this. You know, we didn't find this here. We didn't find this here. You know what I mean? She just vanished. Whereas Fred's saying they didn't go that way, you know, so um, we've all been in that situation 
not driving drunk, but certainly drunk when at some point as a kid, you know, you're drunk and you're just like, I'm going to start running. You know what I mean? It's just like a thing mm-hmm. you do. I'm going to start running. You know, you got, you want to get home, you're, you're, you're cold, you're fast. And I was like, I'm going to start running. It's going to, it's completely counterproductive, but it happens. That's kind of like what I thought, uh, what I thought happened after all of, all the other stuff. You know, I think the, the New Hampshire, um, state police definitely looked hard at the neighbors. I think they definitely, you know, they don't want this on there. You know, they don't want us talking about this. This is a pain in the ass for them. Uh, they want to find out the truth, but, um, you know, if they didn't go to a certain stretch, it, here's, here's the thing. It's either that somebody abducted her who either was, uh, she was walking and they found her and they happened to be looking out for, looking around for somebody, uh, in that, in that weather, or it was one of the two neighbors, or what is a more likely scenario that she was walking and a local dirt bag caught her, a dirt bag that happened to be, you know, walking around in, in this bad weather or it was one of the two neighbors, or that she ran off into the woods and they didn't search that particular part of the woods. That's, that's, those are, those are, and she might have been there. And then we know what happens with, uh, especially up there, there's a lot of critters and stuff got pulled apart. And then that was it. I mean, there's, those are two, certainly, those are two scenarios. And I think the scenario of them not being that thorough is bigger than the other one with there was a dirt bag or it was the two neighbors. True. Fred and and several people on a, in, a, in a search party did go up there and did go through the woods where they thought uh, she could have gone in. Um, but still, there was no bones. There was no there was there was no remnants of anything. No and cell phone or wallet. Yeah. They, and, yeah, and there was no, there was no material. They felt exactly. pretty comfortable no, that they covered yeah. a lot of the, that ground. Yeah. I like what you're doing there, though. This is what this is what needs to happen is you just need to open the doors that should only be open. Like, let's look at the possible scenarios. I mean, she wasn't <laughs> she wasn't abducted by aliens. It wasn't Bigfoot. Uh, she didn't spontaneously combust. So things had to happen. So you look at where her scent went missing and what's around there. And is that possible? And it's uh, it's one of those things where. I've, I've actually told a whole bunch of people this, that when I, when I retire, I'll never retire, but you know, when I, you know, get older, I'm going to get a cadaver dog and I'm going to just hike with the cadaver dog. Mm-hmm. And that sounds sick and twisted, but it's a way that it's what I've always thought I would do. It's just, it just seems natural just because I know how many unidentified remains that are out there. There's 40 to 60,000 unidentified remains out there right now. There's 180 to 100,000 missing persons out there right now. Of course, they're sitting in all these different databases across the country, 2,000 different databases, and none of them talk to each other. NamUs is there. We love NamUs. We love Todd. I love Todd to pieces. But he, um, you know, it's not, you know, if, the, if there was, I keep on telling people, if there's one thing I'd want Trump to do with this authoritarian regime that he's doing is say, you know what? Every missing persons and un- every unidentified remains that you have for every police department, you got to put them in NamUs or else. You lose all your funding. That I would be like, all right, Trump, you did good, and then no, go away. <laughs> the, but um, you know, it's not required for them to put that stuff in. And there are so many missing persons, not even that are out there. There are so many missing persons that have unidentified remains that are in. You know, I'm right. Right behind me is Griffith Park. There are a lot of unidentified remains that are sitting there in Griffith Park, but they're also sitting in evidence lockers. Mm-hmm. A story on a, on a woman who. Uh, adult son goes missing in Los Angeles. She's putting up flyers every year. Turns out he was found six months after he went missing. 
a mile away from her house. Ridiculous. Sitting on a on a shelf in the locker. And she was like, how, how could that happen? And this wasn't like any kind of inter inter um, um, interdepartmental nonsense. This was this was the same department, you know, in the same department, just not knowing, hey, one to the other. So it, um, it, it you know. The idea that she is that she's I just see more of that just because I see so much of it. I see so many unidentified remains that are just they just actually identified remains too today. Uh, Carol Kapetsky, they identified her remains in um, in Missouri. And um, there was one up in Canada where there was a serial killer up in Canada or at least a lot of prostitutes being killed. And they had just identified her remains. And that was from like 20 years ago. So, you know, the I, I see that happening more than, certainly more than like, hey, she's in Quebec and James's flyer found her. But I also see it happening, I see it happening more than, more than any, anybody else. So you don't necessarily think that Maura was suicidal. You just think she might have been, uh, might have had a couple of drinks and kind of just decided to uh, run a little bit. Maybe got a couple miles away from the car, and then at that point, and, and I, I've always kind of said that you know if, if Maura is in the woods, it's not right there. It would have to be at least a couple miles. So yeah, I, I could believe it. You know, it's it's absolutely a possibility. Um, yeah, I mean, whether she was, I'm sorry, but whether she was suicidal, whether yeah. she was driving up there to do something, to do harm to her, yeah. she certainly had a lot of stuff to kind of fulfill that. Um, she certainly didn't choose that area to do it in. And whether she started running because of the uh, the credit card stuff and the pizza stuff and, and saying like, wow, I'm kind of on this parole or probation if I get screwed up after three months and or within three months and that's bad. So I'm just going to run. I'm going to get away from this as far as possible. Um, that could have been it. I don't think she was, if she was suicidal, she wasn't meaning to crash the car there and then just go commit suicide right on 112. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And I don't, and, and I don't really even see her. I think she just wanted, she just wanted to get away. You know, I mean, it was obvious. She just wanted, she's like, I, I've had enough here. This right. is just too much. I just really screwed up with my dad. I crashed his ten thousand dollar. You know, I put ten thousand dollars worth of damage on his brand new Toyota Corolla. He came up here with four thousand dollars in cash to buy me a new car, and uh, you know, I'm just, you know, she really felt like she had the world by the tail, you know, being at West Point and 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 being a runner and being all these things, and then everything sort of started trickling away from her, and she just wanted to get away, and just hopefully, what she was thinking is, I want to reset, and where am I going to reset? I'm going to reset in a place that she always felt free or safe, and that was up in the mountains. I totally agree with that. Um, and when you say reset, we're not talking permanently. She's going up there because of you know whatever. The, I, th- I think be- due to other uh, theories that have been put out there, the whole credit card fraud and the, the accident and getting kicked out of West Point, quote unquote, kicked out of West Point, all of that, I think, has been laid on a little thick with the reasons why, you know, she might have been depressed or or her life was spiraling out of control. People say his, her, you know, it's written her life was spiraling out of control. She had a pretty good support system with her dad and her sisters and her boyfriend, as far as we can tell. So when you say reset, I just want to be clear, like she just wanted to go and reset for a couple of days. When you look at the things that were in her car. It, were, it, it wasn't things that she she took with her as as 
like these are the last things I want n- near me when I, you know, when I go into the woods to commit suicide or when I go to Canada to start a new life. It it just seems like things that people take with it. No, it doesn't seem like it. It was thing. They were things that people take with them when they're going away for a couple of days and then they're coming back. Like she, there was no plan to to go away forever. Now, when I and, say reset, I'm talking about just reset, reset herself, not reset. Reset emotionally. Take a couple yeah, days. Reset. Yeah. This is also going to get into a philosophical discussion of what reset would mean and if there's reincarnation and everything, and I don't think we have enough time for that. But what I, what I mean is reset. She wanted to just reset her, you know, almost her compass in a sense. That's what I see. Yeah. I, mean, I, I do think that, listen, if you, uh, luckily, knock on wood, I've never wrecked my, my parents' car while I was drunk driving. I mean, I mean, there were, it wasn't necessarily spiraling out of control, but there were some bad things that were happening with her um, that don't happen to normal people. Bottom line is, if she would have gotten a, a breathalyzer when she got into the car accident, th- we might not be talking about this now. You mean the first car accident or the second car accident? The, the one um, with the median, the one where she crashed into the guardrail and did all the damage. The, the Corolla you know? in Hadley, yeah. yeah. The Corolla in Hadley, yeah. So, you know, that's $10,000 in damage. They go there. What, what was it, 230, 3.30 at night? Yeah. 3.30 at night, a weekend, a young girl who who – Come on, you don't give her a breathalyzer. They give her the breathalyzer. I, th- you know, she's cuffed and stuffed. Then there's a whole support system that's around her, and then she doesn't go missing. Yeah, it's at least certainly not certainly not in Route 112. Then, you know, but the cops didn't give her a breathalyzer. Right. They let her go in the, you know, in a uh, in a tow truck driver and drive her back to the to, back to the hotel or motel where her dad was staying. Um, you know, it's it's there's so many things uh, along the way that could have stopped this. Um, but at the end of the day, if somebody just wanted to get away and then they got into an accident, that's, that's what happened, especially when they're drinking. It's really interesting kind of play, kind of backpedaling and, and seeing kind of looking at a different path what would have happened if this happened. Um, but from what we heard the uh, from a private investigator who spoke to the officer, the officer said she wasn't drunk. Do you know uh, if – he gave her a breathalyzer or not? The officer did not give her a breathalyzer from what uh, everything that I've heard. And if the officer is going to not give her the breathalyzer, what is he going to say 10 years later? Is he going to say she was drunk and I didn't give her a breathalyzer and I just let her go? I don't He's going to say she wasn't drunk. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good point. I'm not sure when this private investigator talked to... Even if it was, even if it was a week later, though. Yeah, I think it was closer. Yeah. He's going to say, no, she wasn't drunk. And maybe he felt like she wasn't drunk. Yeah. But... With with a single car accident at three thirty, in in you know away from a, from a college town with a college age girl that's coming back probably from a party if she would have asked you know where are you going from, you give her a breathalyzer. Sure, and it's totally reasonable to think that you know looking back on it now, yeah, he's definitely not. If she was drunk and he knew that she had a safe method of transportation to get to her dad's motel with the tow truck driver, he might have been there saying, you know what, it's three o'clock in the morning. Call it, you know, college girl. I'm she already wrecked her dad's car. I'm not going to do anything worse right now. I'm not. Yeah, I'm going to cut her a break. She's getting into a into the tow truck. I know this guy probably, right? I mean, it's a tow truck that uh, police deal with tow trucks all the time. He's probably familiar with them. And he's like, yeah, let her go back to the motel, sleep it off, and then she can deal with the fact that she probably totaled her dad's car. But that's but, the one thing that, like, you always hear about that. And that's the one thing with, with a cop. And I completely respect cops, and they have a, a, a horrific job to do, especially when pulling over somebody. They have no idea what's going to come out at them. But giving somebody a break on a DUI 
is the worst thing you can do because either they can go and, and run somebody over that day. She couldn't have done that because her car was wrecked, but they're not learning that lesson of never do that again. And, uh, you know, when you think about, oh, would you, you know, when you pull over an athlete that's going to ruin his career or, or you know, nothing ruins athletes' careers, unfortunately, but, right. you know, when you pull over somebody and it's going to ruin their career or somebody, or something like that, it's like, you know, you can't let that go because, you know, you, you're driving a two-ton weapon. You know, you're driving that around. And yeah. when, you're, when you're driving drunk or driving texting dr while driving, you know, it's um, – it's a bad scene. You don't do it. You know, there's certain right. things you can get. You know what? You know who should have gave him a break? The cop that arrested Pee Wee in the movie theater. <laughs> you know, this isn't really hurting anybody. Once you go, got got the back door. You're good. Yeah. You know, that was one where it's just like, really, this is this is what you're going to hang your hat on with your career is is arresting, you know, the beloved Pee Wee Herman. Mora did have the wherewithal to flag down a passerby, use their cell phone to make the phone call uh, if she was drunk. And she wanted to, why, you know, why, why wouldn't she, she was maybe a mile away from, it was just that straight road that goes up to UMass uh, where she crashed at that T. If she was drunk, why wouldn't she just ditch that car and run back? Or, you know, I'm just, I'm putting out these scenarios. She, she had the mindset to flag down a car and, and use somebody else's cell phone to get help. And if she was that drunk, I just don't really see her. I don't see anybody involving I, other I, people I put my i put a hundred thousand dollars down right now that she was that she would have blown over the legal limit because we knew she liked to drink she was definitely not necessarily on a bender because there was some time in between there but you know knowing what she, what her mindset was like knowing that we did know that a week later she bought all that alcohol to, to for a trip and she was she was and she had just come back from a party she was drinking and sometimes we'll do it. We'll backtrack a little bit and we'll say, wow, all of these, like the series of events that if this didn't happen and this didn't happen, she wouldn't have been at that spot at 112. And it does seem like a perfect storm of shit. Like no, no wonder she was trying to, like you said, go reset. I mean, these things start just kind of happening and building up over the course of a couple of years going back to West Point. Mm -hmm. But, and, and then that's where you start getting into these rabbit holes and you got to pull yourself out is because does it really matter? Does it really matter that you know, whether or not she was drunk and we say, you know, we know she liked to drink. I don't know if she liked to drink. I know she liked to drink because I read it on a blog because someone said that Maura likes to drink. But I know that a lot of 20, 21 year old college age females and males both like to drink. Well, we do know that she liked to at least purchase alcohol. You know, she gets to, she gets, what was it? $240 out of the ATM and she goes and buys a bunch of alcohol right before her trip. And we do, we do know that, whatever she was drinking and what I've heard that she was drinking was in the soda can in the soda bottle. She put wine in the soda bottle. When, when the accident happened, it was probably in her hand. This is what I'm thinking. It was based on the evidence. It was in her hand. Remember there was a stain up on the roof mm -hmm. of the car and then she opens the door and then it kind of spills out. Um, you know, or she dumps it out underneath or she, the car. Or she dumps it out. She yeah. certainly dumped it out. Yeah. And then while she's waiting, she's just like, wait a minute. It, it's all coming back to her because then, your adrenaline is pumping after an accident your adrenaline is pumping that's going to take over from some of the stuff that you've been drinking you're going to say like all right wait what am i going to do credit card thing could have come into play anything could have come into play and then i'm going to take off that's what i felt i think she definitely took off either way i mean whether she was taken by a dirtbag or not i think she took off but i still think she she went someplace where nobody actually searched for her for a while if she was drunk at both of these accidents and she took off running at the second one the her dorm room was a lot closer than 
Mora would have had to have run that night to get out of the search race. In, in, in the first one, yeah. Yes. Well, the first one is her first accident, though, and she's, you know, she doesn't feel the, the you know, she's, it's her first accident. Okay, maybe people will be okay with me. You know, she doesn't feel the wrath coming down of going back and having her dad say, I'm disappointed at you. And then, you know, all of this other stuff. The second time, she's just like, I'm done. I'm leaving. You know, mm. that's how I saw it between that. To answer your question, that's how I saw it with the first versus the second. Why didn't she just run with the first one? The first one, she was just like, all right, well, you know, hopefully this will be OK. And uh, once she did the second one, it's like second, you know, second car in two in a week, you know, having having crashed. I'm, I'm getting out of here. Yeah. And just to wrap up the whole drinking thing, having driven up through there on the Kangmangas Highway and, and 112 to get to that bend, uh, it's often described people who haven't been there, they'll, they'll, they hear the description of a hairpin turn, and it is a hairpin turn from either direction. Um, but there's probably a dozen other hairpin turns before you get to that hairpin turn. Yeah, and it's over hills. And I mean, it's, it's not treacherous if you're going 30. But if you're in the dark and you're, you know, you can let your car kind of get away with, get, you know, you, you kind of get into the rhythm of it. And it's, I remember the first time I drove up there thinking I'm, if I wasn't paying attention, I'm, I'm stone sober. If I wasn't paying attention, I'd get into an accident. And I'm surprised if she was that drunk, you know, drinking the, drinking the wine from the, from the bottle uh, with the, the, the Diet Coke bottle. I'm surprised she didn't get into an accident earlier. And, and I'm not saying she wasn't drinking i'm not saying she wasn't drunk but there's a lot of other spots there to 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 careen off the road and that would have left us a whole lot of other clues we would have we would have put away these red herrings we would have had a whole nother bit of red herrings Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.